You ready? Hebrews 8, verse 1. NRSV, any translation is good. Uh, well, let me take that back. Not any translation is good, but, but most of the ones you guys have is probably okay. All right. Anybody reading from the King James this morning? Then we're, so, we're solid. Uh, okay. Here we go. Verse 1. Now the main point. Now the main point. And what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, of the majesty, excuse me, in the heavens. Verse 2. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord, and not any mortal, has set up. Praise the Lord. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. I, lo- I don't know what other translations say there, but that is Amazing translation right there. Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. More excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. I'm not going to teach on that, but boy, it is tempting. And by tempting, it means I probably will at some point hit it. So verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 right here. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them from the hand to, by the hand, excuse me, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mouths and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people and they shall not teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward them and their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Praise God. We missed that one. I will remember their sins no more. 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which there was a golden urn holding the manna. I don't like that word, urn. Um, Sounds super old to me, but anyway, rock and roll. A golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Seems like he went pretty in detail here, or she, whoever wrote this. Um, But anyway, verse 6. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties but only the high priest goes in into the second but he 
goes once a year and not without taking blood that he offers for himself for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. Y'all just hang with me, okay? Just hang with me. We're almost done. That was a lie. Verse 8. But this is, or excuse me, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. Now here we go. We're going to get into some of the meat here. Verse 9. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience is one of the main objectives in this section right here. The conscience cannot perfect it. But deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But... When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal Redemption, 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our, here it is, conscience from dead works to worship of the living God. Verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions of the first covenant. That's brand new to us because most of us were told that what, you know, let's, let's see. What uh, redeems us from the transgressions of the first covenant is, you know, for example, repeated prayer, right? Or maybe it's how much you show up or how much you serve or how much you give or if you live this life faithfully or whatever the case may be. The problem is scripture says this, that our transgressions being removed or redeemed has one way. And that way is a death has occurred that redeems us from them. What death? The death of the Christ who is the eternal son who by the spirit offered himself without blemish to God to free us from that which is dead. Amen, brother. 23. Thus, I'm going to skip down. 23. Thus, it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with the blood that is not his own, for then he would have to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. Listen to what he says here, listen. But as it is, he has appeared once, for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Interesting. 27. And just as it, appoint, it is appointed for mortals to die once. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time we heard this verse, right? Just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that, the judgment. 
So Christ, having been offered... Here's what's interesting about these verses that we do. This is what we do. This is called heresy. So this is what we do, is when we take a verse that does not end in a period or any kind of punctuation, but ends in a comma, anytime we take that verse and we preach or teach or put it on a postcard as if that verse stands alone and there's a period at the end of it, that is literally called heresy. That's adding something to Scripture that is not there. There's a comma here, which means keep reading. Okay? So all of sin and follow surely glory of God, period. That's heresy. Because Roman 3 does not say that. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, comma, and all have been justified and given life through Christ Jesus. Why didn't we add that? In fact, if you're going to take any part of that verse and put it on a postcard and hand it out on a gospel track, why wasn't it that part? Right? Because that part, we think, doesn't get people super excited. For me, that gets me way more excited than all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Tell me something new. Of course, you know, whatever, that's fine. But... The justification in life that comes through Christ Jesus, the re- man, how deep. The reason that we don't um, want to put that piece in is because that requires us to submit to what Christ has done apart from our works, and we simply inherit the eternal life that most of us have spent our entire life striving so hard to receive. Maybe I should say it like this: striving so hard to earn. Chapter 10, verse 1. So y'all came to church. Y'all came to church. Okay, now I'm almost done. I really am. Verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers being cleansed once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? There's the word again, consciousness. But in these sacrifices, there is, this is huge, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Whew, right? The law said to offer all these sacrifices. Then you have Jesus entering the scene as the word, as God, making statements like this. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Well, what about Leviticus? Right? but a body you have prepared to me. This is a statement, and we're about to get into this. This is a statement that Jesus is making saying, you, the whole point of all of this has been missed. It wasn't about the sacrifices and it wasn't about the offerings. The sacrifices and the offerings were simply put in place because it is a body that you have prepared for me that you desire. Verse six, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Verse eight, when he said above, only a few more verses. I'm not reading the whole chapter, so y'all can relax. When he said above, 
you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings or burnt offerings or sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a, that's a phrase that the writer of Hebrews uses over and over and over and over again in this section. Once for all, once for all, once for all, once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. That sounds so familiar for most of us. Offering the same sacrifices. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'll never. I promise if you forgive me this time, I'll never do that again. I promise you. If you'll get me out of trouble for this thing I did, I will never do it again. Right? Sound familiar? Right? Y'all won't admit it. It sounds familiar. Okay? Over, offering over and over and over again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time. Hear this language. We've never heard this. And if we've heard it, it's all been explained away. But hear it without the explanation. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make, quoting Jeremiah again, with them. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my law on their hearts, write it on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Listen, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any, sacri- or any offering excuse me, for sin. Last three verses. Excuse me. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, this, this is it. Listen. Let us approach with a true heart in full of assurance of faith. True heart in full assurance of faith, listen, with our hearts sprinkled clean from what? From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay? Y'all good? It's a lot of scripture. It's a lot of scripture. It's really not that much, but. So the writer of Hebrews starts with, and then I'm gonna get in my notes. The writer of Hebrews starts with pointing out that the first system could not clean the conscience of those being forgiven. He ends the section we just read saying, however, what has taken place in the new covenant and in the new law and in the body of Christ and in the final sacrifice given once for all for all time we have been cleansed of that, that which was impossible for us to be cleansed of, which was not just sin, but the evil conscience that produced sin. Okay? So, in Romans 5.13, Paul says, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but he says this, Sin is not reckoned where there is no law. 
Romans 5.13, sin is not reckoned where there is no law. You could say sin is not measured. Sin is not accounted for where there is no law. Romans 7.7, he goes on to say, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Okay, so the law, first covenant, was given to make us aware of sin because sin isn't counted against us, literally added up, where there is no measuring stick or the law. Hang with me. And apart from the law, we would not have, according to Romans, we would not have known sin. And just as a reminder, what is sin? It's not all the bad stuff you do. Sin, hemartia in Greek, is literally without portion or form. It's missing the mark because you're out of place. Okay? We would not have been aware of our being lost or being out of place had it not been for the first covenant, which was given for the purpose of making our misplacement or sin known, according to Paul. To be clear, and I'll make this even clearer as we talk about the scripture today, the purpose of the first law ultimately was not to show Israel and later us the way to God. Okay? The purpose of the first was not primarily to show Israel and later us the way to God. There's only one way to God, and John 14, 6, Jesus himself said is him. There's only one way. And it wasn't even to show us the truth about us or God, because again, according to John 14, 6, there is only one truth, there's only one way, and it is Christ himself who himself is the word. However, the law was given because we would not know what home is had it not been for our awareness of what home is not. We were on the run without any knowledge of the fact that we were actually on the run. And the law was given to wake us up and make us aware and prepare the human heart for its homecoming in the incarnation of the Son of God. And what did the law consist of? Over 600 things, 613, over 600 things that you need to do or not do in order to earn your way into right standing and stay there. First law. And of course, no one ever could, which was the point. So the law was given to show us we cannot do what the law is requiring us to do because the law is a statement of what it looks like to be home. But we weren't home. We were on the run. Therefore, because sin is a placement issue, righteousness is a placement issue, sanctification is a placement issue, and yes, salvation is a placement issue, the law was introduced to show us we're here Home's there, and this can never be home. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many animals are killed and the blood sprinkled all over the place, that cannot ever be home. The law was introduced to prove to us that what we thought was home and who we thought we were was not only not who we were and where we were, but who we could never be. So that... When the incarnation takes place, now that we've seen who we are not and where we are not, 
when the incarnation takes place and brings us home, we actually realize the fact that we were on the run, but now we're home. Okay. Because there's only one way, and it's not the law, and it's not our morals, it's simply Jesus or God, right? And the only way to God is God, Jesus. Imagine that. So what was the law really doing at the foundation? It was training us to reject a life of control and come home to a life of trust and a walk in the cool of the day. Quiet this morning, that's okay. Maybe you're just receiving. This is what the writer of Hebrews is addressing in this text. What happened in Christ as it specifically relates to the law and the old way of living and seeing God. This is what's being addressed here. What has happened in Christ specifically as it relates to the law and as it relates to the old way of living? And why is it addressing this? Because the author of Hebrews is writing primarily to Hebrews, right? To, to Jewish people who are saying, whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, we still got this law that we have to keep. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. A new way. This isn't replacement, okay? Just to be clear, this isn't a replacement theology. The new way has brought the old way to fulfillment, okay? So now you can approach God through the old way because the old way is only fulfilled through the new way. So the only way to approach God both ways is to go through Jesus, okay? So the writer first quotes the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. When the prophet sees a day, when the Lord will establish a new covenant with Israel and Judah. Now, let me just clear this up. We are not Israelites in the room. I don't think, I don't know if anybody's like solid Jewish, but I don't think anybody is in the room, right? Okay, awesome. So all of us by definition are Gentiles, okay? However, in Galatians 3.29, Paul says that all in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. Okay, So while we are not Israelite by blood, we are God's chosen people by the promise. So Jeremiah sees a day when God establishes a new covenant. And this covenant will not be like the covenant God made with their ancestors. That's huge. The new covenant... The writer of Hebrews says this, Paul says this, I believe multiple times, but I know for sure he says this once in Romans 5. The, the new covenant is not like the old covenant, Romans 7. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. So just on the surface, making some initial observations, it's illegal for us living in the new covenant to think we approach God through the same way the old covenant invites us to approach God through, which is do this and 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 don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. And you might make it into God, right? The new covenant says you've made it. That's why you hear that. <laughs> Perfect. See, we're training it, training up a child in the way. No. Um, <laughs> that was so perfect. Oh, man. Okay, bring it back. So it is illegal for us to see the approach of the new covenant in the same way that the approach of the old covenant invites into. It's not like the old covenant, okay? So that's number one. In this one, God will place his law in our minds and on our hearts. 
In this one, God will be, and this is emphatic in the original language, God will be our God and we will be his people. And the knowledge of the Lord won't be an outward learning, but an inward unveiling. And all from the least to the greatest will know him, intimate knowledge. And in this law, our sins will be remembered no more. I could, I could get into some real dangerous territory that I really want to get into, but I don't, I don't know if I'm ready. Um, I want you to think about this. In this law, which we are in today, old is past, behold, all, the, all things passed away. Old is gone, the new is here. Okay? We're in the new law. Now, here's what's interesting. The writer of Hebrews, Jeremiah, okay, sees a day, he prophesies, when God has remembered our sins and our lawless deeds no more. Okay? How would you live, how would you live if instead of thinking God is keeping a record of all the things that you've done that disqualifies you from X, Y, and Z, how would you live if you knew at your worst God has taken every sin, not just that you've done, that you will do, and he has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. Mike Bickle, I think it is, um, says this. He says, it is dangerous to remind God of a sin that he no longer remembers. Right? How would, listen, how would you live, how would you live if the sin thing were no longer an issue? What would our world look like if the church saw the world? And Lord, y'all help me. Y'all stick with me and y'all please trust me, okay? What would it look like if the church, instead of looking at the world and telling the world how sinful it is, what if instead the church looked at the world and instead just simply called it to be what it really is, which is not sinful, but is the first fruits of new creation? What, what if instead of telling the world what it is not, we instead started to announce to the world what it is? Our culture... Uh, we will be defined, no doubt, we're going to be defined by the identity stuff. Identity crisis, that's our, our generation will be defined by what we do with identity. And I'm not just talking about sexuality, I'm not, but every, we have the biggest identity problem in our culture. It's in the church. The church doesn't know who it is. The world doesn't know who they are. Everybody around us don't know who they are. We don't know what we want to do. We don't know what we're supposed to do. And a lot of people don't know who they are, just simply who they are, right? And so we don't know what we're good at. We don't know what we're um, supposed to be pursuing. We don't know. And we're searching for identity in all these different places, specifically right here, which is a terrible place to find your identity. Okay, but most of us, if we're being honest, our identity comes from this. Okay, and the reason we have such an identity problem is because the church, who is supposed to be the ones who hold the key to who everybody is and what everything else around us is, instead of teaching those around us what is true and what is real, we've just simply kept pushing the lie. 
sin, 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 sin. And God is saying, what are you talking about? Because I sure don't know what it is. Because I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now you say that, people, like I say every week, people say, well, you're just giving people license to sin. Do you see my point? It's all about sin. Sin, 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 hell, 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 sin. That's all we talk about. Sin, hell, sin, hell, sin, hell, sin, hell, sin, hell, sin, hell. It's almost like a choir. I could have a choir up here. Just like a ma- sin, hell, sin, hell. Amen, brother. Man, that's the best sermon I heard all. You know what I'm saying? Right? And listen, I'm going to be on. I'm going to get so much flack for this, but you ready? If you ask Veda, if you just ask her what hell is, she has no idea. No idea. Well, brother, that's, brother, that's, that's dangerous. I, I don't see that the case. I think it's dangerous for her to, her to grow up with a consciousness that at her best, the father's waiting for her to slip up so that he can punish. I'd rather her grow up with the knowledge that there is not anything I could do to ever lose the acceptance and approval of my father. And I promise you, she's going to grow up with an anointing that most I never grew up with because I was so afraid of messing up. What could you do in your life if you were not afraid of messing up anymore? I promise you, number one, you'd stop messing up so much. And number two you would start to experience what it means to instead of looking backward at what Christ has already paid for thousands of years ago, instead looking forward to a day when the knowledge of not sin, but the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And maybe that has not taken place because all we've talked about is a knowledge of sin and death and stuff that has oh already been paid for. I know some of y'all are uncomfortable. That's okay. Truth is truth. It doesn't matter if it's not been talked about for 400 years or if it's been talked about recently. Truth is just simply truth. I'm here to give you truth. I'm not here to give you whatever stuff is being pushed all around us because it gets people to show up and gets people momentum. And if I hear the word leadership one more time, we're not here to raise up leaders. We're here to raise up disciples. We're not here to raise up people who are great leaders in the community. And great. You could be a great leader, but the way that you become a great leader is not by the 10 steps of leadership or whatever they are. Refutable laws of leadership. That's amazing. That's great. I'm, I'm, that's, do that. Rock and roll. The way that you become a leader is one thing I ask, this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of his countenance and inquire in his temple. David was probably the most amazing leader that we've had in history outside of Christ himself. And David declared, one thing I ask, David slept with somebody's wife, had the man killed. David took a, a census of his people so that he could be proud of the amount of people that he had and God struck people dead because of it. David did a lot of stuff and yet Jesus, more than he's called the son of God, more than he's called God himself, is called the son of David. Why? Because David's life was lived not with a worry of all the repercussions of what I've done, but one thing I ask, and this shall I seek, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon the beauty of his countenance and inquire in his temple. So I could preach on how to be a good uh, husband, how to be a good son, how to be a good wife, how to be a good uh, ministry leader, how to be a good business person, how to take care of your money. I could preach on all that stuff or I could just take care of it right now. Here's how you do all of that. 
One thing I ask, this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And if you get in that posture and in that position and allow the old to be stripped away from you so that all you can see is the finished work of Christ, you'll begin to be a good dad, a good husband, a good businessman, great with your finances, great with your leadership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One irrefutable law. One thing I ask. Okay. Just felt good. This is what happens when I only have one night to prepare. I end up clearing out our church. <laughs> what, so what was the purpose? What was the purpose of the first law? To make our sin or our misplacement known to us. Okay. But the new law... The new covenant in Christ is not like the first. And if it's not like the first, the primary objective of this new law and covenant cannot be to make that known. So what is the primary objective of the new law and covenant? The law is innate in us. It's part of our identity as human beings. This is what it means when it says he writes it on our minds and on our hearts. God is ours. We are his and our sins are known no more by him. In other words, the first law was given to make our sin known. The second and final law and covenant was given to make our son and daughtership known. The first law told us who we are not. The second law tells us who we are. In the first law, we could be God's people if we did blank. In the second law, we are God's people in spite of blank. And not only does Christ fulfill the first covenant, it's Matthew 5, 17, but in fulfilling it, he abolishes the main objective of the first, which is to reveal sin. And how does he abolish it? Look at what Hebrews 9 says right here. Verse 12. He says, this is how he abolishes it. He entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer sanctified those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified. How much more? Will the blood of Christ, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship of the living God? For this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance, because a death has occurred that redeemed us from the transgressions of the first. That's how he abolishes it. So Christ overcomes sin and death, and that abolishes the need for sin and death to be made known to us through the first law. I know this is dangerous and anti-much of what we talk about in the past you know, 40 years. But if we have been redeemed and it was once and for all, then there is no further price to be paid or redemption to be grasped for. We have full redemption. We are redeemed. We have overcome and we've overcome by what? Revelation 12, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, which testifies to the accomplishments of the blood of the lamb. We overcome. How do we overcome? By great ministry? No, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And what is the word of our testimony? What the blood of the lamb has done. We overcome by the way and the testimony to the way. Religion tries to get you to do all the right things so that you can be in heaven when you die. The New Testament speaks of a gospel in which the only right thing that is needed has been done on your behalf. 
Therefore, not only do we inherit heaven when we die, we inherit heaven while we are eternally here and now fully alive. Religion tells us if you do all the right things, you inherit heaven when you die. The New Testament says that the only thing that is needed has been done for us. And because of that, you can inherit heaven, not just when you die, but now. You do everything in the new covenant out of a love-struck drawing. You do nothing out of a legalistic obligation. So I don't read my Bible or pray because I'm required to. God will love me just as much if I don't. I don't read my Bible because I'm required to. I don't pray because I'm required to. It's probably why people don't read their Bible and probably why people don't pray. I read my Bible and pray because I'm in love. I don't give my life for the church, the bride of Christ, because I'm required to. If I walk away today, I'll be loved just as much. If I walk away today and go bag groceries, I'll be loved just as much. But I don't give my life for this because I'm required to. I'm not required to. You're not required to. I give my life for the church because I'm simply in love. And this is the essence of how we are most Christ-like. What, what does John say about the love of God? 1 John 3, 16, it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The way we are most Christ-like is not religious obligation. Jesus was not obligated to do anything. It was out of love that he laid his life down for his brothers and sisters and the father's kids. Right? So the way we are most like, uh, Christ-like is not by mimicking Christ with our best effort. It's by laying down our life out of pure love for the one that first laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. We've seen it. And the verse goes on to say, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So continue to love others in the same way. Right? The writer of Hebrews goes even further than this, though. And I'm going to end with this. And he talks about this, 10, 18. He says, where there, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any sacrifice or offering for sin. 19. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the covenant, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We weren't just set free from our sins. We were set free from the very thing in which sin originates, which is a evil conscience and evil conscience. A conscience is simply an awareness or a knowledge of. Now, I want you to hang on me. Okay. A conscience is a knowledge of whether something inward or something outward, your conscience of it, right? So a conscience is something that you're aware of or that you have knowledge of knowledge of. Now, where do we hear that? Where have we heard this? Knowledge of. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve 
in the story are commanded to not eat. Let me say it like this. They're commanded in the story to not consume from the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they do, they will what? Die. Let me read this. I promise I'm almost done. It's only 11.16. Y'all chill. I can read your brains, okay? It's part of being a pastor. It's one of the perks. You get to read everybody's minds. Um, that's a joke. Okay? So, listen. Knowledge of. Now, I want you to hear this. In Romans 7, this is what Paul says about the law. Uh, what then shall we say? Was the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, would have not, I would not have known sin. Um, I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment comes, sin revived and I what? died. Okay? If you eat of the knowledge or the consciousness of good and evil, you will certainly die. Yet, Adam and Eve did not die when they consumed this, right? Now, I've talked about this before. Some people would say, well, they were eternal before, and when they ate this, they died after a thousand years or whatever, which is based on so much speculation, it's not even funny, right? We have no idea if Adam and Eve were eternal in the first place. In fact, if I could really, really ruin a lot of things in this moment, but it's true. Um, the first, let's, let's call it 11 chapters of Genesis were written at a very, very, very late date to speak to something deep, to speak to something spiritual, probably while the Israelites are in exile in Babylon. Okay? So for us to read Genesis 3... And point to, now, there may have been a historical Adam and Eve, whatever, I don't know. That's just not what Genesis 3 is telling us. But Genesis 3 is trying to tell us there was a man, ironically, the man's name was man, okay? And then there was Eve, who came from the man. Now, later on, in the New Testament, when Jesus died, I'm not teaching on this, but just to give you some fun facts. When Jesus died, uh, do you remember in the story, they poke him in the side, and what pours out of the side? Blood and water, which is the exact thing that pours out of a womb when a baby is born, right? If you go to Genesis 3 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, the word used for rib is probably not accurately translated rib. It's more accurately translated side. So the woman comes from the side, or she maybe will say this, is born from the side of the man, Adam, and Christ in the New Testament is called who? Adam. Okay, so in the, in the Old Testament, Eve is deceived and she takes a bite of this consciousness, this, this knowledge of good and evil. She consumes it. Now listen, I want you to hear this. Because, this is all brand new. I didn't even have this on my notes. Because she consumes this, Adam who did not make the original decision to consume it, suffers just as much as his wife because his wife came from his side. The second Adam, Christ, becomes flesh 
and does what he did not deserve and what he did not choose, but does because of his eternal connection to his bride, which the New Testament tells us is you and I. So now you see Genesis 3 was not just telling you about a serpent that could walk around and talk. Okay? Now, I'm telling you, you can take that as you, you can, if you want to make that the devil uh, or whatever, rock and roll. Um, I've said rock and roll three times today, so. Um, make, we'll edit that out of the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Got to sound polished up, you know. Uh, that's totally a joke. I'm being sarcastic. Here's my point in all of this. The, the law, okay, Hebrews says, brought about an evil conscience. But in the new covenant, we have been cleansed from the evil conscience. Eating of the tree of the knowledge or conscience of good and evil. The writer of Hebrews in this moment connects us all the way back to the beginning and says that Christ has cleansed us from an evil conscience. And if we've been cleansed from an evil conscience, only consciousness of what we now truly have, which is good, remains. This statement that they make in Hebrews here, the writer, is equivalent to saying Christ has cleansed us from what happened in what we call, I don't call it, but most people call it the fall. And I, can't, I cannot state this enough. What did you and I do to attach ourselves to this finished work? This is what we have to get. What did we do to make us a part of the gospel? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.9, it is not by works so that no man can boast. In other words, you did nothing. You couldn't do anything. That was proven in the law of Sinai. The law of Sinai was to prove to us you couldn't do it. You've done nothing. You were simply born. And born into the finished work of Christ. And that's it. That's why it is grace. And that's why it is, in fact, to be cliche, too good to be true. That's exactly why it's too good to be true. Because you were simply born, you were born into the finished work of Christ. Not by works, so that no man can boast, but simply by taking your first breath, you inherited the finished work of Christ just as anyone before the finished work of Christ inherited that which came from their ancestor, Adam. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, if through Adam, if through the one act of transgression, which is interesting also that in Romans 5, all Paul mentions is Adam. He never mentions Eve. When he talks about the original transgression, all he mentions is Adam. And when he talks about the original and final redemption, all he mentions is Adam, the second one. So in the beginning, he doesn't mention Eve. And in the ending, he doesn't mention Christ. I mean, he mentions Christ, us. Okay? Isn't this interesting? Paul is saying there are two primary people that this gospel is concerned with. Adam and Christ. And then he says this. Let me help you. He says this. Adam was simply a type of the one to come. So you and I and how we relate to Adam, I've taught this before, was, was nothing but 
a prophetic declaration to how we are related to Christ. So whatever we believe, I don't care what you believe, I do care, but I don't care what you believe about what we inherited because of our relation to Adam. You can believe whatever you want about that. As long as you believe the same thing, all the more to how whatever you believe about our relation to Adam relates to Christ. So this is exactly why I'm 1,000% against the doctrine of original sin. Okay, And most of you probably don't know what that is, and that's okay, don't. The doctrine of original sin says all of us are evil and sinners by nature because we inherited that nature from Adam. Which basically takes the New Testament and goes, what did Christ do? If that's the case, what did Christ do? Give us some blood, better blood? You know what I mean? What was the whole point? What was the point of the suffering of Christ if all we are is simply still related to Adam as long as we take that blood back into the holy place and start sprinkling it enough till we're forgiven? No, Christ stepped into the story and said, I'm cutting Adam off. And all of you in relation to the death that came from Adam, now simply because I'm taking the place at the head, because I'm taking that place, all of you that were related to the death of Adam are now related to the life of Christ. Just in order to believe doctrine of original sin, you have to believe that you are a sinner from birth to have a conversion to be saved later. Oh, man. Huh? The doctrine, in order to believe, this is why, this is why most churches have the doctrine of original sin. Most of them don't even know they have the doctrine of original sin, but they do. Okay? says, you're born evil, therefore there has to come a point in your life where you're converted from evil to good. But, but what the New Testament teaches us is that you were saved 2,000 years ago when Christ declared, it is finished. Therefore, you are righteous from birth. Therefore, you need not be converted, only awakened, or as Justin Martyr wrote in First Apology, you need to be illuminated. Right? I, I, would love, I, would, I said this earlier. I'd love to teach all the other virtues of living the Christian life. And we will. As maybe, maybe, at some point. But none of them matter if they aren't built on the foundation of the true and authentic and I believe orthodox, original, and faithful gospel. This is what keeps us living in religion and keeps us living in that broken down enslaved mindset. Do, 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 because that's what you are supposed to do, right? but built on the foundation of the gospel, all the other virtues in our life, all that we do happens because we know in our heart of hearts that we are equipped to do whatever we need to do because of who we really are in Christ. I, I said this earlier. Identity is our greatest test and our generation's greatest salvation. Identity is our generation's greatest test and it's our generation's greatest salvation. We need a revolution of original design. I, be I believe we don't need to tell people what they should be. 
We need to show people who they are. We don't need to become or anyone to become what they are not or to be converted from what they are not. We need many of our brothers and sisters to become what they are and stop being what they are not. We, we don't need a bunch of people to say, this, you're just a sinner, but if you do this, you can be converted. You'll still keep the sin stuff, and you'll have to fight it and have site blockers all over your computer and accountability partners and all that other fun stuff. But if you repeat this, but you'll make it. Right? I, I, know, I know I joke about the repeated prayer a lot, but that's just, bow your heads, repeat this prayer. And listen, if that's the way you get in, praise God. If, if that's the way you get into the gospel message, amazing. That's amazing. As long as we don't believe it was our repeated prayer that converted anything. You were converted 2,000 years ago when Christ took on your flesh, went to the cross and died so that at the point of death, he could declare it is finished. What? What's finished? Sin, the law at Sinai, our broken identity, our misplacement, our running, our lostness, all of it is done. And we, do you see, we, and we have the, the, I think it's guts. We have the guts to try to say, Jesus, great work, but we'll take it from here and we'll finish it for you. If you get hit by a bus today, you know what I mean, right? Isn't it so weird that Jesus never preached anything like that, right? Isn't it so weird? If you're out on the sea, and Peter's on a boat fishing, and he hooks you, and it causes you to bleed out, where will you be? You know, right? He says, today is the day. He says this. He says stuff like this. I have come to seek and save the lost. He doesn't say... I want, Man, I'm getting in so much trouble. He doesn't say where the lost are going. He says, I've come to get them. Revolutionary, right? He, he doesn't say, well, to all that, Luke 15, all the notorious sinners, let me tell you a parable. There was a guy, got hit by a bus. It's always a bus, you know, um, subway, whatever. And he fell down the subway tracks until he cried out for, he didn't cry out for help, so he got hit by the subway and praise God. You know, no, he says, let me, let me tell you a parable. There was a son. There, there was a sheep who ran, chose to run off, chose to run off, chose to go on his way, chose his own path. And here's how the shepherd responded. He left the ones that were home and he chased after the one. And he goes this way. He says, and sought it until it was found. And when it was found, he put it on his shoulders, brought it home and threw a party because it was found. At no point, listen, at no point in that story does it say the sheep made a conscious decision, I'm going to walk home. The, the shepherd said, I went and got him and brought him home. And if that wasn't enough, there was a woman who had a coin. It was lost. She turned the entire house over, seeking until it was found and threw a party. And then there was a son who wasted everything, which is the, the religious people, by the way. Okay? Who had it all, wasted it wasted it and when they came home I didn't even question where my stuff was I just put a robe on them 
And I didn't even let them get to the porch. I ran and got them. And not just them, the other son that was just as lost, if not more lost, than the one we call prodigal. If anybody's prodigal in the story, it's probably the older son. But I'm going to go out to the older son, and I'm going to get him too. But do you see what I'm saying? So Jesus spends his entire ministry. Paul spends his entire ministry. John spends his entire ministry. The writer of Hebrews, they spend their entire ministry trying to wake people up to the fact that something has happened in Christ that affected his creation. Not a portion of it, not a small little blip of it, not just the ones who do all the right things with it, but he has radically shaken creation to the core and redeemed it. I came to seek and to save the lost. This is evangelism. It's restoration of the proper identification of what it simply means to be human. What does it mean to be human? To be like God. So evangelism is a restoration of the meaning of human. And this is what Karl Barth says. He said, I quoted this last week. What is Christian is secretly but fundamentally identical to what is universally human. I'm going to end with this. Jason Upton, y'all get so sick of me sharing Jason Upton stuff, I know, but I love it. I had a moment. Monday, this past Monday, was the most, I kid you not, significant encounter I've had with the Lord in years. Probably, I said this Tuesday night, about top three of my entire life. Jordan Veda had gone to uh, her co-op on Monday, and so it was just me. I got a little like desk set up at our house since we're meeting here now. And um, so it was just me. And uh, I turned on this song. I'm going to read the poem to you. Um, I turned on this song, and the Lord, the, I felt the Holy Spirit just, just wrap me up. And I, so I want to I read this uh, poem to you. Um, it's called The Farmer in the Field. That's what he says. He says, There was a time not long ago when the sun did shine and the sowers sowed. And the rain did rain, and the crops did grow. Listen. It was a time before machinery, a time before certainty, a time before we bought the lie, a time before the farmer died. We had trusting hearts and a human soul. It was a time not very long ago. Time before certainty, time before we bought the lie. The machinery of controlling our identity, because that's what Sinai tells us we're supposed to do, has to be exchanged, as in the beginning, with a trusting heart and a human soul, a consciousness. Y'all pray with me. Lord, I pray today. There, there was a time, there was a time when the church would gather together. We know this, 200, 300 A.D. The church would gather together every Sunday. They did it on Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection. And every single Sunday, they would show up, they would break bread, communion, 
and uh, drink the wine of communion. And then they would just simply read scripture and celebrate. And if you look back at the historians, you look back at the church fathers that wrote of this time period in those churches, there was no talk of sin. There was no talk of evil. It was all talk of what has happened in the finished work of Christ and the resurrection. So they would write, Justin Martyr specifically writes this, uh, does a lot of writing on this, that every single week in the church, historians say, was the equivalent of what we celebrate at Easter once a year. He is risen. He is risen. Why? Because if we get he is risen, then we'll finally understand what it means for our sins to be forgiven. There is no sacrifice that continually needs to happen. He went in once for all, for all time and accomplished what our efforts and our offerings were incapable of accomplishing, which gives us the freedom to stop trying to live a life of consistent sacrifice, sacrifice, offering, offering of sin, and instead begin to offer sacrifice and offering of love and sacrifice of offering of accepted and sacrifice and offering of fully alive, of being brought back into the cool of the day where we don't have to hide our nakedness anymore because we're ashamed. We don't have to hide behind bushes of religion and works. But instead, we can step out fully alive, fully free of all of our shame, fully vulnerable, and see that when you come looking for a walk in the cool of the day, you're not interested in a report card. You're interested in locking eyes with us. And when you lock eyes with us, you don't see evil. You don't see sin. You see what has been accomplished on our behalf and our eternal redemption through the blood, not through blood of goats and bulls and not through the ashes of a heifer, but through the blood, perfected and pure blood of Jesus. And that's how we overcome. That's how we live our lives in a space of overcoming because we have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony of what we have now inherited by way of the blood of the lamb. And so God, I pray that we will be, as we've been praying for weeks now, that we will finally step into the place of what it means for us to be the first fruits. We are the first fruits of a new creation that is covering the earth. And the first thing we have to do to be the first fruits of a new creation is to release ourselves from the bondage of the old. The old is gone. The new is here. It springs up. Do you not perceive it? That's what Isaiah says. So God, we perceive it today and we don't just perceive it. We, we say, take us as deep as you want to take us into this revelation of the goodness of God, of the agape, the self-giving love, the preference of God for us. And I, I believe we're going to see the wholeness of salvation begin to spread in ways we could have never done it if it was because of our best effort. 
ways that we could have never done it if we put our best evangelist on the stage and told him to preach a gospel message. I got, here's a gospel message. You are loved. Here's a gospel message. Welcome home. So Yahweh, we love you in this space. This is holy ground. Not this building, but this gospel. It's holy ground. So God, we honor you today. We pray. Let me pray this last thing. We pray. Um, I feel like we're in a day and age where we're seeing a, another sort of reformation. And God, I believe that in the same way you blessed the foretaste 500 years ago of what has become a new gospel, not a new gospel, an ancient gospel in the earth. I pray that we take that almost like a, like a baton. We take that and then we see it all the way to the finish line. What the reformer started 500 years ago, I pray in the next 500 years we will see finished. So give us the grace to do that. Give us the grace to be satisfied with one thing. In your name, amen.